Remain standing for our sermon text from Romans 4, starting in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Pay attention. This is a long passage. Pay attention to God's inerrant word. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs... Faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, He did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word and for the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection on our behalf. And we thank you for giving us the faith necessary to be united to him and thus to you. May your spirit be among us and work in such a way that our hearts are inflamed, that our love for you grows, and our understanding of the gospel deepens, even in this hour. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. In Romans 3 and 4, Paul's been sending ground troops into hostile territories and dropping bombs on enemy combatants in his war for the gospel. The opposing army raised up three divisions in an effort to undermine the gospel of grace. And Paul has taken out each unit with superior firepower. The first unit was the first 
Works Division, which was the biggest unit of the opposing forces. It clandestinely encouraged God's people to prioritize works over faith and the relationship with God. At the end of chapter 3, in the, in the first part of chapter 4, Paul sent in the first Old Testament division, which overwhelmed the first works division with verses from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The first Old Testament division destroyed works righteousness and established that salvation is and always has been by faith alone, apart from works. The second rival unit was the eighth circumcision division which employs similar tactics to the first works division. The eighth circumcision division stealthily elevated circumcision to the same importance as faith in Christ, of equal importance. In Romans 4, 9 to 12, we looked at last week, Paul deployed a special ops unit to blow up the headquarters of the eighth circumcision division. This was a short but decisive battle. The only thing they had to do in verses 9 to 12 was point out that God declared Abraham to be righteous by faith alone years before he was circumcised. The third enemy unit was the 613th Law Division, which brings us to today's text. In verses 13 to 15, Paul's field artillery unit disarms the 613th Law Division by decimating its weapons, its its weapons storehouse, its armory, and once again establishing the priority of faith. Verse 13 says, For the promise to Abraham, and I'm reading from the handout, or his seed, that he would be the heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, for it is those of the law, for if it is those of the law who are to be heirs, faith is emptied and the promise is nullified, for the law brings wrath. For where there is no law, neither is there transgression. The promise was not given through the law, Paul says. What is this promise that Paul keeps referring to throughout the passage? Well, in short, it's the gospel promise of God's grace in Christ and the coming Messiah. But Paul says something interesting in verse 13. He says the promise to Abraham and his seed is that he would be the heir of the world. In other words, Abraham and his seed, his descendants, would inherit the whole world through faith. Where does Paul get this? Well, for starters, God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God gave Abraham a promise that he would bless the world through him. In Psalm 2, that God tells the messianic seed of David, ask of me and I will make the nations your in your heritage or your inheritance, and the ends of the earth, your possession. Ultimately, God promised the world to Christ, his son, who is the divine seed of David, uh, of Abraham and David. And the inheritance that belongs to Christ also belongs to those united to Christ 
by faith in him. Jesus said that in him the meek shall inherit the earth, as Bobby, Pastor Bobby just read. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we keep the faith to the end, we will reign with Christ forever. The book of Revelation promises more than once that the saints will reign with Christ throughout eternity on the new earth. Revelation 22.5, And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the the heritage, the inheritance of those who fear God's name, the inheritance of those who live by faith in the Messiah. And it has to be by faith, Paul says, because law and promise are incompatible. They can't coexist in the same domain. The law is a good thing, but it can't inherit the gospel. It's powerless to procure the promise faith alone is able to lay hold of God's gifts John Stott puts it wonderfully he says law language you shall demands our obedience but promise language I will demands our faith what God said to Abraham was not obey this law and I will bless you but I will bless you Believe my promise, end quote. If we were to sideline faith and replace it with the law, the result, Paul says, would be a two-sided tragedy, a double-sided tragedy. First, faith would be emptied of its power to receive the promise. Second, the law, in turn, would nullify the promise. The law would nullify the promise because that's all it's capable of doing in this scenario. In fact, that's its God-given role, apart from faith. It, It was designed to be a means of wrath, not a means of salvation. In verse 15, Paul says the law can only bring wrath, or as he put it back in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the law does three things. It shuts every mouth makes sinners aware of their sin, and declares the whole world to be guilty before God. That's its function. The law is a vehicle of condemnation, not of grace. It brings God's wrath to every sinner it meets, which makes it a bad instrument for sinners to use in trying to secure God's saving promises. Only Jesus was able to obtain the promise through law-keeping, The rest of us must obtain it by putting our faith in Jesus, in Christ, the the seed, capital S, seed of Abraham, who secured the promise for us through his law keeping, through his perfect obedience to God, obedience that landed him on a Roman cross. The sentence, the, the last sentence in verse 15 says, where there is no law, Neither is there transgression. That can be confusing. It doesn't mean that where there, that, that there's no sin, that there was no sin before the Mosaic law, for example, or that there's no sin where there's no knowledge of God's law. Paul states clearly in the next chapter, Romans 5, that damnable sin existed before the era of the law, going all the way back to 
the garden. In this verse, Paul uses transgression as a somewhat of a technical term to describe the violation of specific written commandments of God. It's possible to sin without God's law. People have been doing it for millennia, but it's an even more serious offense to transgress specified, clearly defined, verbally transmitted laws that come straight from the mouth of God. A transgression of that kind does need the presence of the law. What then does God do with the sin of his people? What did he what did he do with Abraham's sin? How can God fulfill the promise to Abraham and his spiritual descendants when all of these recipients of the promise, which include includes you and me, continue to sin? How does God overcome this? Well, Paul's answer in verses 16 and following is the overall theme of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New. The answer is, the promise was given through faith. That's the second point there on your outline. The promise is fulfilled by faith alone so that the promise may depend on God's grace rather than on human effort. Verse 16, for this reason, the promise is by faith so that it may depend on grace and be guaranteed to all the seed, to all his seed, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God. In verses 16 to 22, Paul lays down some practical theology about the nature of Abraham's saving, promise-procuring faith, which is the same kind of faith that you and I exercise. All of his seed exercise the same kind of faith. And so first, Paul focuses on faith's object in his example of Abraham in verses 16 and 17. Then he considers faith's obstacles, specifically Abraham's obstacles in verses 18 and 19. And finally, he points to faith's objectives in verses 20 to 22. The object of Abraham's faith was who? God alone was the object of Abraham's Faith. The second half of verse 17 says, Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead to life and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You hear that creation language? Brothers and sisters in Christ, the, the quality of your faith is important. It, strong faith is a worthy goal. Necessary goal, but... The object of your faith is critical. It's absolutely important. Robust faith will do you no good if it's in the wrong object. Sturdy faith in thin ice can get you killed. But wobbly faith in thick ice can get you from one side of the frozen lake to the other. You can, you can go on YouTube and watch man's earliest attempts at, at, uh, to fly. And 
and there's the guy with the, the makeshift wings attached to his arms. And, and he, he may have strong faith that he can jump off of that high platform he's on and take flight, but soon after he exer- exercises his robust faith, the object of his faith, the, the makeshift wings, are going to fail him. On the other hand, the person who is deathly afraid of airplanes but has just enough faith to board one with, with fear and trembling will be carried by the object of his faith, the plane, from one side of the globe to the other. Abraham's faith is exemplary, not, but, but not mainly because it was intrinsically sturdy. There was a sturdiness to it that we need to consider. But Abraham's faith is worth imitating primarily, first, because its object was the one true God. Everyone has faith. You can't be a human being and not trust in something or someone or some things or someones. The decisive issue for every person is where they direct their faith their trust. Who do they trust? In whom do they entrust themselves? Or to whom do they entrust themselves? Who or what do you trust? Everyone really, we could boil it down like this, everyone really directs his or her faith to one of two objects. Either God or self. The, the alternative to having God as the object of your faith is having yourself as the object. Self-trust can take all kinds of shapes, uh, all forms of idolatry. But at the end of the day, either God is at the center or, or you are. God is calling the shots or you are. It's, it's sort of a binary choice. Either God is enthroned in your heart or you are. That's why Proverbs 3 famously exhorts you to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, on your own view of things and understanding of how the world works. Either you're trusting in the Lord or you're leaning on your own understanding. And so which is the case in your life? Verse 17 details two characteristics of Abraham's God object of his faith. First, he brings the dead to life. Somehow, not quite sure, but somehow Abraham was aware of God's resurrection power. He knew that he was the God who raises the dead. Have you ever wondered how Abraham knew this? There, there are no resurrections recorded in Genesis and no explicit teaching on resurrection there. And yet somehow Abraham knew in Genesis 22:5 that after he slayed Isaac, his son, on the altar, as God told him to do, God would bring Isaac back to life and Isaac would come home with his father. Hebrews 11:19 picks up on this and makes it even more explicit. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Second, Abraham's God creates ex nihilo. 
The Latin phrase ex nihilo means out of nothing. Verse 17 says that God calls into existence the things that do not exist. The, the God who created the heavens and the earth, ex nihilo, out of nothing, by speaking them into existence, is now has, has spoken to Abraham. Now, it was biologically impossible for Abraham and Sarah to conceive the promised son at this point. But Abraham put his faith in a big God who can resurrect dead things and call non-existent things into existence. The bigness of his God dominated Abraham's experience in his world view. Now, we know from Abraham's history that it wasn't perfect faith. It wasn't flawless, but it held on the whole time. The story has been told and retold uh, of Dr. Robert Wilson, who was an Old Testament professor at Princeton, Old Princeton Theological Seminary, and then later at the new Westminster Theological Seminary. One of Professor Wilson's former students had been invited back to the seminary to preach at chapel. Dr. Wilson sat near the front, as he did when his boys, as he's going to call them, uh, when they came back to preach, he sat at the front to hear him preach. Afterward, Wilson approached his former student and said, if you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. I am glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be. His former student, a little confused, asked him to explain, and Wilson continued, well, some men have a little God, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little Godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God and he will bless your ministry. End quote. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that a big view of God translates into a name-it-and-claim-it type theology. It doesn't mean believing that God can and will do whatever you want and ask at any time because you're asking in the name of Jesus. No, a big view of God means trusting that God will bring new life and new creation in his time and in his way. And when he does so, it will be obvious that it was for your good and for God's glory. God doesn't always give you the things that you ask for. Paul repeatedly asked to be relieved of that thorn in his flesh, but God kept it firmly in place for the sake of Paul's sanctification, which was more important to God. And eventually, Paul was able to see that God's version of the story, the one where Paul is afflicted 
by Satan's messenger was a better version than the story Paul had in mind. God answered Paul's prayer, in fact. God always answers our prayers when they are prayed in faith and in Christ. It's just that sometimes he waits and gives us something even bigger and even better than what we had asked for. Isaiah 61, uh, in Isaiah 61, God gives his grieving people a promise that one day he would, quote, bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now, the fulfillment of that promise turned out to be a lot later and a lot better than the original audience knew to hope for. God wouldn't be big if he was limited to our desires, our prayers, our plans, our imaginations, and our timetables. A big God must have space to to say no to our small desires even when we think they're pretty big, in order to provide us with something bigger and better than we ever dreamt. Is God the object of your faith? Or are you the object of your faith? How big is the, another way of asking that question is how big is the object of your faith? Is your perception of God big or little? Do you believe he can, he can not give you exactly what you wanted, even a good thing that you asked for, exactly the way you wanted it and asked for it, and instead give you something even greater, whether in this world or in the world to come somehow? Do you believe that? Well, what about faith's obstacles? The obstacles to Abraham's faith threatened to keep his vision of God small. He had to hope against hope. He had to believe despite the science, despite the evidence, despite the circumstances, despite the odds, that God was as big as he said he was. And that somehow, in time, he would prove it. Prove it to Abraham. If you can pick out the obstacles as I read verses 18 and 19 from your handout. He believed, hoping against hope. And so became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So shall your seed be. Verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he gave no thought to his own body, which was already dead since he was about 100 years old, or to the deadness of Sarah's womb. The obvious hindrance to Abraham's faith in verse 19 was the biological impossibility of getting Sarah pregnant. But the less obvious barrier to faith in verse 18 was the stunningly large scope of the promise. Through Sarah, Abraham was going to become the father of many. Through Sarah, Abraham would be the father of many. Kent Hughes says, the promise was so wonderful, it was hard to believe. It was too good to be true. 
to think that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars above and the dust below, that all the earth would be blessed through him, that he would achieve a standing he did not deserve. This was difficult to believe, end quote. But the biggest obstacle, the one that was most immediate and seemed most insurmountable, was the scientific problem. How was he going to conceive a son, the promised seed? And Sarah was too old and barren, and he was, he was no young guy himself. How is this going to work? Abraham wasn't sure. And yet he made a conscious decision to believe what one old commentator called the bare word of God. The bare word of God was all Abraham had in this situation, but it was all he needed in order to know what he needed to know and believe what he needed to believe. Because the object of his faith was God and not his own understanding, and because his God was bigger than the obstacles in front of him that faced him, Abraham believed the bare word of God, hoping against hope in the sure promise of God. If God is who he says he is, it's impossible for his promises to fail. Impossible for him to forget about you. Impossible for him to let the situation get out of control. It's impossible for your situation ever to be beyond his power. For many of us, the main obstacle to our faith is that lingering suspicion that God isn't who the Bible says he is. He isn't as trustworthy or as powerful as the prophets and the apostles say. We're, we're suspicious, doubtful. Is there any other way to explain how we can give lip service to trusting in God and then go on to rely chiefly on our own resources, on our own understanding, on our own engineering and planning? Is there any other way to explain the anxiety and stress about circumstances and outcomes? Let the example of Abraham's obstacle-defying faith drive you into a deeper heart-level possession of the truths that reside in your head. As one of you told my son, Zach, this week, the goal is to get the truths that live in your head down into your heart. Verse 20 says, Regarding the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. There's a good diagnostic that you can run on yourself to measure how much spiritual truth you've appropriated. There's one thing that you can do to sort of quantify how much you're wavering. And that one thing is this. Measure the length of your worry list, your list of worries. Measure the, the length of your anxiety list.
We've seen that Abraham's faith was in God and that his view of God was bigger than his view of the obstacles. Now in verses 20 to 22, Paul's point, Paul points us to faith's objectives, faith's goals, its end or ends. He mentions two objectives, God's glory and our righteousness. It's not an exhaustive list, of course. The end of verse 20 says, giving glory to God. Verse 21, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. And so, it was counted to him for righteousness. The first objective or purpose of faith in Christ is simply to glorify God who has never been glorified in anyone's life apart from faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. We could say impossible to glorify God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Abraham believed God existed, that he exists, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Abraham was also convinced that God's bare word is true and reliable. Verse 21 is one of the best concise definitions of faith there is. It says, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to do. That's, that's saving faith in Christ. Now, if we combine Hebrews 11:6 that I just read, and then Romans 4:21 that I also just read, we have a fairly comprehensive but still concise definition of the kind of faith that Abraham had, the kind of faith that glorifies God. God glorifying faith, one, believes that God exists, two, believes that God rewards those who diligently seek him, and three, is fully convinced that God is able to do everything he's promised. You're a note taker, Hebrews 11, 6, Romans 4, 21. That's saving faith in God glorifying faith. The second objective or purpose of faith in Christ is our righteousness. Our being declared righteous before God. Our justification. Verse 22 says that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. God gives you faith for your salvation. That's one of faith's objectives. So to summarize point two there, saving faith believes in a big God who creates new things ex nihilo, out of nothing, and gives life to the dead. Saving faith acknowledges obstacles but still clings to the promises of God in his word, believing that God is bigger than the obstacles, the barriers. Saving faith glorifies God by believing that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him and by being fully convinced that he is able to do what he has promised. Paul doesn't allow his readers, he doesn't allow us to relegate these truths to the distant past, to the dusty pages of ancient history, or just to Abraham. The promise was also given for us. 
That's what Paul says in verses 23 to 25. Now, it was counted to him, was written not only for him, but also for us. It will be counted to us who believe on him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was given for our trespasses, given over for our trespasses, and raised for the sake of our being declared righteous. God's righteousness that he gives in Christ was not just for Abraham. It was for Abraham, but not just for Abraham. It's also for you. You too are declared righteous by faith in Christ. For Abraham, it was the coming Christ. For us, it is the Christ who has come. The the staggeringly expansive promises made to Abraham belong to everyone who is united to Abraham's promised seed, capital S, seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25 refers to the death and resurrection of Christ, which is the ground of our righteousness before God. Get this, make this clear in your mind. Our faith, your faith is not the ground or the basis of your right, of our righteousness. If our faith was the foundation of our salvation, we'd be in trouble. The only ground of our righteous status before God is the righteous life, obedient death, and vindicating resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son. That's the only ground, the righteous life, obedient death, and vindicating resurrection of Christ. He was given over, Paul says, given over to crucifixion for our trespasses, our law-breaking. And he was raised from the dead so that we, in him, could be declared as righteous as he is. That's the truth. That's the promise. Before God, you are declared to be as righteous as your Savior. That's how close that unity is. True of him is true of you in God's courtroom. In Christ, you're not only God's friend as Abraham was, but also God's son. You can call God Abba, Father, because Jesus has won your son's status. And it's really true. You really are that son, that daughter of God. To make this your own, you simply must believe that verse 25 is true. That Jesus died for your sins and that God raised him from the dead for your salvation, your justification, so that you could be declared righteous before God. You must entrust yourself to the big God who did a far bigger work than Abraham ever dreamed of. Abraham knew God could raise Abraham's only begotten promised son, Isaac, the only begotten promised son, not his only begotten son, but the only begotten son of the promise, Isaac. He knew that he could raise Isaac from the dead after he was sacrificed. That's, that's pretty big faith right there. 
and a pretty big God. But did Abraham ever imagine that God would send his only begotten son to become a sacrifice and that this son's death and resurrection would secure eternal life for all of Abraham's seed? I mean, Abraham believed in a big God, but this God turned out to be way bigger than even Abraham could conceive of. The extent of God's power and the glory of God's splendor defy human heart and brain capacity. They defy human heart and brain capacity. Even Abraham's. So who is the object of your faith? In whom do you believe, as, as I ask you every week before we confess the creed? May it be the God of resurrection and new creation. The God who brings the dead to life and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The God who brings the spiritual descendants of Abraham from spiritual death to spiritual life and calls into existence their previously non-existent faith. That's what he does for the seed of Abraham. How do you evaluate the obstacles to your faith? How big are they in comparison to God? May you be fully convinced that no impossibility is more impossible than God's unfaithfulness or God's powerlessness. He's able to do everything his word says that he's done and everything that his word says he will do. Finally, what are your objectives? What are you in this for? Who's at the center? Is it you or God? at the center of your plans and, and program. May your faith glorify God, and may you be declared righteous before God and by God as you exercise faith in Christ that pleases God. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for making us your sons through your eternally and only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for keeping your promises, for being true to your word, and for being gracious and merciful to us by giving us what we need to procure the promises that you had for us, for uniting us to Jesus by the faith you've given to us. We pray that you would strengthen our faith in your promises, that we would stand firm in the faith and on the promises in Jesus Christ, that we would not waver in unbelief, but rather by your spirit and through your word and through the fellowship of the saints, that we would be strengthened in our faith, even as Abraham was. We thank you for creating out of nothing even the, the promised seed and even our faith in it. And we give you thanks and ask for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.